Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Frances Dewing. Frances says she's had a non-linear career path, starting out with practicing law as a public interest attorney, providing free legal aid to marginalized, low-income populations. She took an in-house legal position with a private security firm, Concentric Advisors, and ended up becoming their COO. In 2016, Rubica was born from Concentric Advisors, a consultancy that provides physical and digital security for some of the world's most prominent individuals. Frances now serves as Rubica's CEO and is on the board of Concentric Advisors. She is a member of the Female Founders Alliance and on the advisory board of Future for Us an organizer of Seattle Startup Week, a Washington state attorney, and a champion of diversity and inclusion within the tech and security industries. She's also a mother and a wife and a friend and very cool. (laughs) Welcome, Francis. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for being here. Okay, we're going to start with rapid fire. Um, I'm giving you a hard one. Uh Uh-oh. What word best describes your leadership style? I feel like you should ask somebody else that on the oh. team. Um, oh, that's true. I could. I'm going to say enabler. That's awesome. Like servant leader. Yeah. You're there to like help. Yeah. Help everyone reach their goals. I like it. What book do you most often recommend to others? 100 Years of Solitude. Have you read that? Gabrielle Garcia? Gabrielle, yeah. I feel like that was on my nightstand for so many years because it felt like I should be reading it, and I don't think I ever read it. I would know if I read it. I have a a hard time picking one favorite book. I was a lit major, so I have like a stack of favorites. I'll give you like a a dozen. So I asked the right question. That was just random. I didn't even know you were a lit major. Um, Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Introvert. And do you prefer mountains or beach? For sure, the beach. I hate the snow. (laughs) You hate the snow. Um, If given the choice, would you choose a spa day or an outdoor adventure? Outdoor adventure. And what woman do you most admire? You know, I tend to admire people I know personally. So um, my mom, a couple of my very good friends. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. Because those are the people that you get to experience the most. Um, what is your favorite type of cuisine? Are you a foodie? Yeah, I, I have a hard time with that one, too. There's so many. I Right now, I love sushi. Yeah. Yeah. I love sushi, too. That's the healthy choice. All right, well, let's get down to it. We are talking about you as a child. Like, where are you from? And tell me about your family and your upbringing. I'm from Seattle. Nice. Yeah, one of the few the few people. Yeah, you're an OG. <laughs> me, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm from a big family. I'm one of six siblings. And where are you in that birth order? I'm second youngest. Okay. And there's a large gap between me and my next eldest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my um, my dad was from Seattle as well. My mom is from Eastern Washington, from a huge family. But this is the kind of family where 
like 70 people at Christmas kind oh, of family. I, love I have that. like 26 first cousins. Is it like Italian? No. Irish? Uh, Norwegian, Norwegian and just mutt. Lots of know? kids. Yeah. Lots All of about kids. lots of kids. Yeah. Got to run the farm. Nice. Were you raised on a farm? No, no. My mom's mom's side of the family. Yeah. I, you know, why I'm one of six, that's. I've always wanted to be one of six or even eight. I mean, I just love the idea of tons of siblings. Are you guys all close? Yeah. It's funny because we all moved away and then all moved back. That's what happens in Seattle. Yeah. Isn't that funny? I moved away for 17 years and then moved back. So where did you go? I went to LA for undergrad. Oh, yeah. I hung around for a little while and then came back. Nice. And would you say you're more similar to your mom or your dad? Hmm. I think my more noticeable characteristics are my dad. Mm-hmm. But um, I think also becoming a parent, I realized how much I have in common with my mom as well. You know, mm-hmm. and um, probably some of my close, some of my idiosyncrasies or little things that you learn about me when you're close to me are more like my mom. So I don't know, kind of a mix. Yeah. Yeah. What are the idiosyncrasies? Now you've got me curious. <laughs> Everything from just like mannerisms and, uh, you know, speech and stuff like that, but also yeah. all values. So when you say values, yeah. what are you referring to as far as what were those values? Well, I, um, as you kind of alluded to with my nonlinear career, I'm at the, you know, at the heart of it, I'm a social justice warrior, I think. And a lot of that comes from just, um, just my upbringing around, you know, not just, you know, treat everyone with respect and everyone deserves an equal chance, but really fighting for the underdog mm. on both sides of the family, kind of from, from completely different, uh, angles. I've both been, um, like my, my mom grew up in Eastern Washington, very mm-hmm. poor, mm. um, and kind of struggled with that personally, um, all of her life in terms of just making her own way. Um, my, my dad's side of the family, my grandfather, who I'm named after, was um, a big civil rights advocate here in Seattle wow. and was very involved civically. So was, you know, kind of came from more means, but still kind of ended yeah. up in the same, with the same kind of direction. So really kind of really strong roots in, and values in helping people and doing something meaningful, not just, yeah, you know, something lasting. Yeah. And um, when you were young, I guess maybe, you know, middle school age, were you as inspired by kind of social justice even back then? Oh, middle school. That's like a, I mean, <laughs> I, remember. That's like a, I would say when I was in elementary and when I was in oh. Uh, middle school, high the, school, the middle school years. is just like the dark years of like yeah survival, <laughs> just trying to survive. Or... Okay, so high school, were you into? Yeah, I mean, I've always been um, involved in tutoring and like house building, and just, I mean, like in terms of volunteerism, kind of across the board, lots mm-hmm. of different. Um... And were you a good student? I was a good student. You were a good student. Yeah. How did you choose Loyola Marymount for college? I got a full ride. And that made it for academics or mm-hmm. sports or for academics. Wow. Yeah. So I was I actually applied to all East Coast schools. I was like going to get away. Yeah. Uh, and Loyola was my backup school. Uh-huh. Um, but um, they did not you a- not get accepted to the schools on the East Coast or you just made a choice? To I did go? get accepted, but I didn't have as much money. Uh, and yeah. also when I visited, frankly, um, Loyola was way more diverse than a lot of the other schools I had applied to in mm-hmm. terms of just walking around the campus and they're it's a Jesuit school like they also have a commitment to service and social justice and mm. being in LA where there's just like everything yeah of course it, yeah so um it was a combination of all those things but yeah 
um, kind of looking at, you know, student loans are a real thing. Oh, they're a major thing. And yeah. so how did that work out for your siblings? Have they gone on to be in the business world? Or are you kind of the outlier, like big badass CEO um, in the family? No one else is a CEO, but um, we've, we're kind of all over the board. A very creative family, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I There's a number of musicians and artists in my family. Oh, so cool. Not me. Yeah. I took like eight years of piano and can still sort of play, but definitely not like someone who can yeah. just sit down and make oh, stuff up. Oh, that's just like my dream, to just be able to jam. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's got to be fun at like Christmas dinners with seventy people to have a few that family jam sessions. Yeah, yeah. very very artistic. Um, but yeah, I've got, and I guess this is also same side of the brain, but also a couple uh, siblings who are really um, they're like uh, translators. They speak multiple languages. Mm, yeah, and, same side of the brain. Yeah. And so, did you think that you were going to practice law and and advocate for? No, I mean when you went to never. law school, what I never was... thought I would be doing any of the things I'm doing. No, I mean, but no, did you think that when you went to oh, law school? when I went school, to law school. Yeah, what was your plan yeah, with that? I thought I wanted to do immigration law. So uh. one of my um, very close friends who's had a huge impact on my life is um, an immigrant from Zimbabwe. Mm. And they had, her and her family had a horrible immigration experience. Um, they basically got swindled and ended up here without, they thought they had their lawyer had filed papers he hadn't and so they were literally left like at the border like without citizenship and had to apply for a political asylum they were fleeing um the political unrest in zimbabwe and so anyways um she was a huge inspiration for me to go to law school and then what i realized was i didn't really immigration law is a lot of policy and a lot of bureaucratic forms and paperwork and um so just when i started kind of um, doing internships and getting hands-on experience in law, I realized I liked direct client work more than a lot of the immigration policy stuff. So, yeah. um, but I definitely went to law school wanting to do public service, yeah, public interest law. Um, and so that's what I did when I uh, passed the bar and graduated. But I was um, at that time also fundraising my own salary. What does that mean? So like the non the civil legal aid organization I was look, working for, I literally had to like do grant writing and help put on fundraisers to raise money to pay myself. To oh, because we were serving people who couldn't pay. Right, it was free legal services. Yes. So and I had law school loans that I had deferred for six months oh, or a year, geez. whatever that were you know starting to come due, and so I I took a job at Concentric Advisors to be their in house legal counsel. Thinking, oh, I'll just do this for just a couple to years. Hold, hold the, yeah. Pay off my loans and How get back to How did you find out about them? My my sister, one of my sisters, worked for a uh, company that had contracted with Concentric to do their security, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she said, "Oh, there's this company. I know they're growing really fast, and I, I, I know some of the people there, and they seem really great." I mean, it was just one of those random yeah. introductions. As most yeah. jobs happen. Yeah. And so tell our listeners what Concentric Advisors does. Concentric Advisors provides um, a wide range of mostly physical security and risk analysis services to very high-profile people around the world. Mm-hmm. So this is a very niche business. It's uh, not, you know, not everyone needs these kinds of services, but these are like... Uh, global executive protection and bodyguard services, management of stalkers, physical security at residences, 
global kind of very customized geopolitical risk analysis based on who you are and what you're doing and where you're going at any time in the world. Mm -hmm. So um, very niche business. Um, They've been around for almost 15 years now um, and kind of totally organic growth, uh, word of mouth. And, yeah. um, well, because those people know each other. Right. Yeah. Right. There's, and necessarily they're, you know, kind of under the radar uh-huh. for, you know, privacy and confidentiality. Very, very big. Right. Um, so I um, and actually Rubica spun out of Concentric. We started as the cybersecurity unit for that company. And mm-hmm. so we were originally a cybersecurity service for this kind of very elite billionaire clientele. And then we decided to spin the company out and scale that to make it available to everyone. Mm-hmm. And how did you learn about cybersecurity? When uh, you found yourself, you yeah. were COO. Yeah. Well, so I so first when I joined Concentric, I joined as in-house legal counsel, right? And then... Um, very shortly after joining, um, the uh, so the CEO and founder of Concentric is my co-founder of Rubica, mm-hmm. Roderick Jones. Roderick, yeah, I love Roderick. And He's oh really, yeah, you yeah, know I've Roderick. He um, pulled me aside uh, one day and said um, he had to abruptly fire the person who was running our finance department, and um, he was like, "I need you to run finance for a while." And I was lit- I literally like turned around in my seat to see who he was talking to because. I have never even taken an accounting class before. That was one of those things I always think about. My dad, I I got a a lit degree, a poetry degree Mm -hmm. in undergrad. Super useful, obviously. Mm -hmm. And my dad was always like, you have to take at least one accounting class or one business class. And Mm -hmm. I never did. And I was in that room that day thinking like, oh, my God, I should have taken the accounting class. um, Were you like imposter syndrome beyond? Like, how did I end up here? Yeah, I mean, that was a a turning point in a sense because I felt like... In any other context, any other day, I would have been like, oh, no, no, I can't do that. That's not responsible. Um, but Roderick was like, I'll give you whatever resources you need. I think you can do it. Are you willing to try? And so I was like, OK. And yeah, for him, it's also just like it's like your advocate. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And so we had a bookkeeper and a tax person. Um but that was it. And I ran finance for almost a year before we found somebody permanent. And that was really kind of the stepping stone for me holding a bunch of different roles in the business. And I basically I, I learned security on the job, frankly. Um, and when it, at the, in the early days of Concentric, I was one of the only people that wasn't a security specialist in some niche because mm-hmm. we had this really wide range of security services and then these specialists like running each of those service lines, Mm -hmm. but nobody that really kind of tied it all together. And when we were meeting with clients, I was one of the only people that was able to be like, okay, what is your real need? How, how do I help craft something for you and diagnose that? And, um, and so, yeah, and that's similar to cybersecurity. That's, you know, something that we saw that, um, our customers needed, and we needed to be offering that. And so we hired some in-house experts. But then I helped design that service based on the needs that we saw with our clients. And, um, I mean, I tell my my team today at Rubica that they're lucky that uh, I don't have a technical background because I can't micromanage them. So I have right. to be that kind of leader that's like, I know enough to know what we need to do strategically, but I don't code. I can't, you know, read network data for, uh, you know, Indicators of compromise. I need to rely. I need to help you, need to, you do yeah. your job. So. And depend on them giving a lot of transparency yep. around the status of their work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and so 
You mentioned that he's the co-founder. You guys spun it out. Mm-hmm. How did you end up as the CEO? Was it intentional mm-hmm. in any way around a female CEO? Um, this is another just, I, I feel like Roderick and I should like do a road show because he's so, <laughs> he's so special in this way. Um, when we launched the company, he was CEO and I was COO uh-huh. when we launched Rubica. And about two years in, we had been kind of having these conversations, but he was like, I think you'd make a really good CEO. I think you're ready for it. Um, I should move in to be chairman, uh, into the role of like chairman, president, but y- you know, you can have this basically if you want mm-hmm. it. And so, again, I don't know of any other man, frankly, that gives up a CEO title. Right. That's very rare. Um, and so, uh, but that was really, you know, in some ways the way that we, we, we had worked together for I don't know, more than 10 years at that point. And so we, you know, our work relationship is very fluid in terms of how we split duties. And um, it's, it's, I don't think we ever kind of consciously felt like we needed to like delineate certain things, but it was becoming clear that I was kind of the go-to person for the staff and they needed, you know, that that leadership. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that it has helped, you know, we all, we've always had a mission at Rubica around um, diversity and how diverse teams are needed for innovation. I, I think it ended up being a really powerful shift for the company to make me CEO so that I could really yeah. lead that as a female yeah. CEO. How much have you raised so far? We've raised 15 million. So 15? Mm-hmm. Were you on the roadshow doing those pitches? Yes. And how was that experience? And did you experience kind of what women talk about? I had never raised money before. So this was definitely, I think we've raised three rounds now. And I think both Roderick and I kind of like know the, know how, know the game. We know how it works mm-hmm. now. But that first, that first round, we were just like, our head was like on a swivel, you know, because you go into one meeting and you get told one thing and then you go into another meeting and they give you the complete opposite analysis Mm -hmm. it's so much i you know i i really appreciate a lot of the um resources that are being made now for um women founders Mm -hmm. but i still think that they're overly focused on how to make a pitch deck and a business plan when the first thing you need to do is get in the room yeah and you are not gonna only one percent of people through cold calls, get into a room. It's about who you know, and it's about how you build those relationships and leverage those over time. And nobody is telling that to women. Yeah. Um, Well, I think I know you're a member of Female Founders Alliance, and we were their first, at least one of them, maybe two of their first sponsors. We continue to support that organization. And now I'm a member of a, a limited partner in a venture fund trying to fund female entrepreneurs. Because I think that that is true, that there's mm-hmm. a lot of these deals happening between men um, and women don't have an opportunity to even get into the room. Mm-hmm. So I want to do whatever I can to support women, like not just a sounding board, but but literally helping right? with right. intros or with funding or with right. anything that I can do to help. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one thing that historically men have done naturally and women haven't in terms of um, that, that difference between... Uh, giving someone a warm intro and kind of putting your reputation on the line for somebody, mm-hmm. that that's what I see men do for each other all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, Shauna, yeah. let me just send that email and say how amazing you are to get you in the room. Yeah. And for some reason, a lot of women are stingy with that. Mm. And I think we, you know, maybe not so much 
you know, that hopefully that's changing. But and I, I try to whenever possible, like, just I will introduce you. Yes. To whoever, you know, yeah. and then you get in the room and that's your job. Right. Yeah. But why? Why hold back? Like, you know, you might not be able to give somebody a job or fund somebody, but all of us have someone they can introduce like doors Absolutely. we can open. You know, Absolutely. I, I enjoy doing that. And I'm surprised to learn that it's so rare, but I have learned that mm-hmm. it is rare. So, okay, so you're on the road. How many pitches did you have to do? Oh, my gosh. Hundreds? Well, the <laughs> first, yeah, like that seed round or seed and A round. Oh, it was, yeah, dozens and dozens. We mm-hmm. were a little bit um, more strategic the last time. Um, I mean, that's the other thing I've learned just uh, over time is that you don't just go mass blast and take every single meeting. You yeah. strategically meet with certain funders first and then other ones and then other ones. And yeah. they all talk. Yeah. And um, absolutely. But nobody, again, these are the things that nobody is. So doing. are you in the enterprise or consumer? In terms of our go-to-market? Yeah. Yeah. So we launched originally um, direct-to-consumer. Like okay. that was the whole thing was taking this billionaire service and making it available to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of our marketing and language and everything, it was direct-to-consumer. But what we realized after launching that lower-priced product is that uh, more than 20% of our, our organic user adoption were small businesses. Mm. And when we dug into that, we found that we, because we had designed for the end user, we were um, perfect for the small business. Because mm. if you think about it, if you're a 10-person team, uh, potentially working remote completely or at least part of the time, you probably have an IT person you call to like, set up your email, but you definitely don't have somebody on it, staff monitoring. Right. And def- we got a we got a pitch for that and it came back so expensive. That's right. Um and then we were kinda like, eh, do we need that? Right. Yeah. No, Rubica makes perfect sense for right. for anyone. Right. For consumers or businesses. Yeah. Um yeah, I want to get into it. Yeah. Tell me about the culture. You talked about diversity. What else have you been intentional around as far as setting the culture of the type of company you'd want to work at? Mm. I think sometimes diversity conversations become somewhat abstracted. And at the end of the day, what what we're trying to build is a place where everybody feels like they can, um, they feel comfortable bringing their full self, right? Like comfortable making a mistake, comfortable disagreeing or throwing an idea out there that's totally different from everyone else's. Um, and the only, and, and a place where you can feel like your ideas are actually heard. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the only way that you can do that is to, um, you know, it's not just, it's it doesn't stop with just talking about attracting diverse people and diverse talents. It's how do you create practices and policies about how the, the way that you operate, the r- way that you run meetings, the way that you show appreciation, the way that you structure um, raises for people, um, and who gets those. Mm. How do you structure all that around values that promote that kind of a healthy workspace? Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the ongoing work is. So we, you know, I I don't want to sit here and say, like, we figured everything out. It's a, you know, as Rubica grows and changes, we have to, we're, we're going to have different problems. We're going to have different things we have to yeah. adapt to. But I think it's the important piece is about committing to that ongoing effort in um, making sure that it's not just lip service, that mm-hmm. it's actually baked into the way that you um, really that you structure everything from your career development through to mm-hmm. your how you um 
I guess one example is there's there's a lot of I think there's a lot of places still where you'll have someone who is an individual contributor, an ex subject matter expert, and then they get to kind of the top of their tier in, you know, whatever best I don't know, DevOps developer or something. Mm-hmm. And the only way they can continue to progress is now to start managing people. Or you have a really high-performing salesperson who brings in a lot of revenue but is just terrible to work with, and yet they they keep them, right? And so unless you're willing to make those hard decisions about um, kind of putting your money where your mouth is in terms of your values and what you're building, mm. you're ultimately, I think it's really easy if you don't put those things in writing and hold yourself accountable to them mm-hmm. as a leader. It's really easy to be like, oh, but that person, Abs- what can we do Absolutely. Them? But you have to do it. Yeah. Or else you, you know. Can... What are some of the difficult decisions that you've had to make so far in with, your, in your role people? as a CEO? Yeah, as pe- with people. I mean, I think it's it's these things that I, I feel like I'm I'm preaching things I'm conti- I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. You know, um, definitely this is like an old truism that y- you should um, uh, hire slowly, fire quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely have been guilty of not doing that. Yeah, um, and. It's hard because I'm yeah. sure you're an empath and you feel and you're trying to create a culture of like almost like a family culture mm-hmm. of like, hey, you're a part of something. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these experiences together and then you're like, oh, my gosh, how do I break this person's heart or disappoint yeah, them? For sure. And, and you know, yeah. that's hard. And that is something where, you know, especially when you're like gritting it out as a startup, that kind of loyalty um, to the people who have, who, you know, who joined before we had a website I, that's a real thing, right? There's some value to that. We were just laughing the other day. You're like, we were in the trenches together. We were in the trenches and you, and they believed in me, Yeah, you know, um, and they trusted me that this was actually going to be a thing and we could do this. And, um, so, uh, so yeah, that's, you know, that's never, that's never easy, but I also believe in, um, being really transparent with people and having hard conversations because I think, like, if you want that um, mutual respect to be genuine, like, you can't be, like, uh, pretending like everything's okay yeah. if it's not, you know? Yeah, so, that's how you build trust for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then when you do give compliments to people or really appreciate them, they know you mean it because, yeah. you know, you told them before when, when things weren't going well. Yeah. You know? And what is um, the business model? How does Rubica make money? We're a subscription service. Okay. So it's... Um, Per user, monthly subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a flat rate or does mm-hmm. it go down with more users for a business or how does that yeah, work? Yeah, it will. Um, we're actually modeling that out now to uh, be able to offer deeper discounts for people yeah. who buy in, in bulk. And so um, the people, I'm assuming you have salespeople. Uh, we actually don't. You don't have yeah, salespeople. Yeah, we will be hiring a few, but we've, we're, we're self-serve. Yourself yeah, too. and we work through some distribution partners as well. Okay, because mm-hmm. I was going to say, who would you be selling into, I guess, the head of IT? Well, like I said, a lot of these small businesses don't really have that. But you're not selling into larger businesses? 
Well, we have some larger businesses that have bought Rubica for sex of their employees, like their ex- um, traveling executives or the families of their oh. executives or their remote workers. So it's oh. like an augmentation. But yeah. we're really um, the niche that we are perfect for are um, is these small businesses that are basically completely left out of the cybersecurity industry right now. Yeah, this yeah. is so brilliant. I'm like, this is so good. Your timing is so I think good. So. No, seriously, you must be really psyched. Like the more I'm hearing it, because I'm right in it as a small business owner, and we've gotten lots of, um, lots of like RFPs to do work together, and uh, you know, it's it is one of those things where you're like, we should have written that well, (laughs) you know, those things that you're like nice to have, right? Oh, I should have saved all those photos to the cloud, you know, or whatever it is. Um, What do people feel the most threatened by when you talk to them? Is it Photos? Is it business documents, bank statements? Like, I, mean, I what think are they... it's, it's still financial loss. All financial loss. But there's loss. also this kind of ambiguous fear around privacy, just generally, mm. which, you know, whether that's photos or emails or just the sense that your identity is just like out there, out of your control, basically. Yeah. yeah. Didn't California pass an act mm-hmm. in January? CCPA. The CCPA. So that's the, what does CCPA stand for? It's California. Uh, cybersecurity, something, something, Privacy Act. So they are, what does that get us? Yeah, it's, I mean, think of GDPR, but with actually with more teeth in some ways. So in a nutshell, CCPA, um, it it makes the the customer has ownership of their data as their asset. Oh, I wrote it, it down. Sorry. California Consumer Privacy Act. That's right. California is the first of, I think, a wave of moving towards consumers needing to have more control and rights around their own data mm-hmm. rather than us being the commodity and all these large companies profiting off of our data without our consent or knowledge. Yes. So this is trying to tackle that by saying if you if you don't properly gain your explicit consent to collect and use your data, then you'll you face massive fines as a company. Yeah. And so where does Facebook fall into all that right now? That's a good question. <laughs> they're they're kind of scrambling uh, right now as far as I can tell. Um, they've well if I don't know if you've noticed that they've um They've released uh, a bunch more features that um, there's this feature now where it's like you can change the settings on how Facebook tracks you even when you're not on Facebook. Like location So Facebook, most people didn't know they were doing this, but even when you're not using Facebook, the app, they are tracking things about you. Every website you visit that has like a like symbol on it or has like a Facebook tracker embedded in it, they're collecting all that info about you. So Mm. if you go in your Facebook profile now, you can see like they know that you've visited the Home Depot website Mm. and have uh, they know so much stuff about you that's not related to you using their app. Mm. And um, so they're making that more. Now you have some controls over that, but it's just kind of. Uh, it's like this ball of yarn. Like every every time one of these things happens, in whether it's in policy or in the news, Facebook is just like it's unraveling in terms of exposing how much data they're truly collecting on people, and you know their their whole model is based on monetizing that for their own benefit. Right. If Z is like, oh, we've arrived, everyone's totally protected, mm-hmm. and A is like, oh no, we're mm-hmm. going to be seriously at risk. Mm-hmm. Where are we in this whole cybersecurity thing? 
I think um, it's not something where you can say, okay, I'm secure now. Check. Don't have to think about that It's ongoing. It is ongoing. And that's why it's gotten to the point where, you know, it's kind of like taxes where you could do your own taxes or you could hire someone to do those for you who knows way more about the ins and outs of all the laws. And, you know, it's it's or you could try to self-diagnose your own health conditions. But we Mm -hmm. also have doctors who know way more about how to do that. And Cybersecurity is now something where you need an expert and it needs to because it's ongoing and continuous and you have better things to do with your life than try to be a cybersecurity expert um, day in and day out. Just thinking about that. And um, so so it's ongoing and it'll go in waves like the the problem with cybersecurity is it's not this kind of normal market where you've got like a consumer, a, a buyer and a seller. Yeah. There's also this. And there's third not even party. really a product. <laughs> there's just like the product is fear. Well, you've got this third party, which is the cyber criminal. Right? Yeah. We'll just say the the collective cyber criminal that's always innovating around whatever our latest protection is. And so the minute you go, OK, I've got a password manager, two-factor authentication. Well, guess what? They're figuring out ways around all of that stuff, too. It's There's enough incentive um, on their side. There's enough money to be made mm-hmm. that it's worth their time to continually try to innovate around these things. And so it's a full-time job to keep to keep up with them as well. Mm-hmm. And how do they make money by stealing your... Yeah, well, so I'll give you an example. Um, so everything is monetizable. Um, if When things like the Equifax hack happen, people think, okay, um, you know, get a new credit card, change my password, do ID theft monitoring. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of how they're using all your personal information. What's really happening is that all that info on you, where you've lived, who you work with, your, you know, who you bank with, whatever, that's all ending up on the dark web where it's being collated with a bunch of other information, both publicly available and from other data breaches. And they're able to collate basically full profiles on people for targeting. Mm. So so they're selling it. Yeah, they're they're selling it. They, the dark web, you can buy, not only can you buy um, targeting information on specific people or companies, you can buy all-in-one malware instructions on how to create your own attack. You can do like hackers for hire. Like everything is for sale on the dark web. It's like cyber crime as a service now. And it's global because it's a really big business. It's uh, This is a dated statistic, but two years ago they said it was... Um, a $600 billion per year industry, just cybercrime. Wow. And what they what the cyber criminals have realized is as enterprise, big enterprise like banks and big, big companies, they're spending a ton of money on defense. So now the easy targets have become small businesses and individuals where you can still make a million dollars as a cyber criminal. Yeah, just do a lot of it. Yeah. It's or a, it's a scaled thing. Like, right. oh, let's just hit a lot of people. Sure. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. I hope that of all of my podcasts, I'm like, I hope everyone's <laughs> listening to this one. I'm going to send it to everyone because I feel protective of yeah. friends, family, small business, the economy. Well, it's so scary. And I would, I, I really don't like the fear mongering. So no, just I, no, to kind of counter you're not. It's, it's not. I'm not saying it in that way. I'm yeah. saying it in a way of like, kind of like, let's wear our seatbelt. Let's For not, sure. let's not, exactly. not drive, but let's, yes. let's wear our seatbelt. That's right. That's exactly right. And that, I, I feel like being someone who d- didn't come from a technical background, I, the reassurance I give people is like, if I can run a cybersecurity company, you surely can have control of your personal cybersecurity. Yeah. Um, so it's a subscription-based model and mm-hmm. how much 
how much is it? Yeah, it's nine ninety nine per user per month. Okay, um, that's so reasonable, right? And yes. if and if you're somebody who wants to just use your same username to install it on your kids' devices, then kind of in, endless opportunities for you to just spread that throughout your family. Um, we're going to be launching a um, because of our organic traction with small businesses. We're going to be launching a team plan in about a month or two. That'll be have a couple more features like some administrative features and stuff. That'll be around twenty dollars, mm-hmm. twenty five dollars. I would imagine kids would be an even bigger target because they're just like boom, boom, like yes, yes. to everything. Yes. And actually, we did a study last year. We presented at RSA, which is the largest cybersecurity conference in the world, mm-hmm. on um, the emerging threats in kids' games, kids' mm. apps on mobile phones. Yes. Uh, basically, it, imagine you're at a restaurant with your kid and you're like, here you go, play whatever game on my phone. There's all these ads that are laced with malware in those games that if your kid's just playing and clicking on stuff, that can infect your phone Yes, without you even knowing. And yeah. they specifically target kids' games and streaming games because they, they know. know. They, they know. And, and they design like... them to look like they're part of the game and pop up right when you're about to click on something else so that you accidentally click it. And... Um, yes. And so what are some nuggets, like some key takeaways? I mean, obviously, I have the location services stuff off unless I'm using an app that's necessary, like yeah. like Google Maps or one of those. Yeah. But like, what else can I be doing? Yeah. I If you're only going to do one thing, it's don't forget about your mobile phone. This has like now become the remote control for our lives and um, preventing that kind of data leakage from both from in terms of changing your settings so that you're not you know, allowing these default access to information by apps, but also not just downloading every app in the world without thinking about what that could potentially be. Um, Yeah. Is there some way to tell there's like a lock on it or something to show that it's secure? You know, unfortunately, one of the best ways, one one of the key things about Rubica's service, we have a lot of um, uh, layers in our security, but the most compelling piece is that we're doing basically monitoring of all the ones and zeros going back and forth to your device, no matter what's happening, good or bad. And that allows us to see even emerging threats. So like if you download an app that looks like it seems like it's legitimate, but it's actually doing nefarious things in the background, the only way you're going to know of that is if someone is monitoring that traffic and can detect that anomaly, which is what we do. Mm-hmm. So that's not so much of a self-help thing as um, just the reality that it's that network layer monitoring mm-hmm. um, in an ongoing way that is really the only way to do security these days that's yeah. effective. And so um, are there things that, you know, if I'm your girlfriend and I'm just sitting and having a glass of wine with you and I'm literally like, tell me what to do. Here's my phone. Uh-huh. Are there things that I should be thinking about? The phone's really where we're living. It right? is. It's where we're living. I mean, living. that's where I'm living. For sure. I, I mean, sometimes I might forget my computer and it's fine. I get everything done on my phone. Yep. Um, I would l- do what you did and turn off location services for anything that doesn't need it. I would turn off Siri or any Siri I, is equivalent. Siri scary? A Siri feels super creepy to me. Well, Siri, I mean, again, if, if you need Siri for, you know, your map for directions or whatever, that's fine. But by default, Siri is listening to every single one of your apps, your text messages, your emails, your literally every app that you have on your phone, Siri is mining data from that app. And it's also listening in the background for for you to say Siri. Yeah. And so then it's, it's picking up. And where is it going? I mean, this might sound Apple. like an... 
idiotic question, well, but like, going, where is it going? It's going to Apple. Okay. Um, if you have an iPhone, but you're relying on that company to promise that they're not selling that data to anyone else. Yes. And um, that sort of information is, you know, the legitimate use of that sort of information is for um, making the service more uh, customizable for you. But the other thing is, guess who also wants that information? Advertisers. And yeah. And so, and what about um, Facebook and Uber and Snapchat and Instagram? <laughs> I I personally, if you want to be super, super secure, carry two phones. That's probably not realistic for most people. I... Um, I think, you know, I, I don't use Facebook. Um, yeah, I tried to cyber stalk you and I couldn't find you on Facebook. I, I'm on LinkedIn though, right? Yeah, so are. I'm not totally like off the grid. I yeah. just am choosy about, uh, what I post when I post it. Like if you're going to post stuff on any social media, I'm not a fan of, oh, look, I'm with Shauna in the podcast room today, date and time, like now you know where I am. I post yeah. things after. Or how about I'm in Thailand and my house is empty and you yeah. can go rob it. Right, right. Or here's right. my kids and here's their names and here's their, right. where they go to school. Right. I know. I mean, I think the thing. Like we think we're living in this little tribal community and then you realize like the World Wide Web is I mean, it's so scary. Even the podcast, we can't really pull the metrics for, like, who's listening. It can't be like, oh, CEO, 37-year-old male mm-hmm. is listening. It could, But I could see the countries. And there's, like, <laughs> I think it's like Kazakhstan, like Bangladesh, like crazy. And I don't know how or why. I don't even know if it's accurate. But then I get like, oh, I feel really vulnerable, which is weird because it's yeah. like I should feel that way just being in Seattle. Right. But right. sometimes I, when you realize the wide reach of technology, yeah, it's really vulnerable. Well, some of it, like you were saying, is about um, just giving people that visibility and information so you can make your own informed decision. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like just like you were saying, if you have Rubica or just information on how to protect yourself, you now feel a little bit more in control. You don't have to stick your head in the sand, you know? Okay, so we've talked a lot about cybersecurity. And that also, like a whole area of that is the whole password thing, which I I have a couple of different ones that I use. And now I'm like, I don't even know the password to that. (laughs) Oh, you have a couple different password Yes, and I'm like, what's the best one? And how do we... um, Do you believe in that, the, the whole password? Yeah, I mean... Password managers are definitely better than reusing the same password or keeping them on an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> in order to remember them. Yeah. Um, actually, more important than your password is having two-factor authentication. Okay. Be- like where they send you like a text to your phone to make sure that it's you? Yeah. Or even better, a better version than that is where you have one of those app authenticators on oh, your device. That I only have that code. on my business bank where it constantly changes the number. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else can you use that for? Yeah, there, so like Google Authenticator is a, a free app authenticator that works with a bunch of different services that you have a unique, it generates a unique code for all your different accounts, basically. Oh. Um, so it's only one app, but... Uh, Wait, I need help. Can you see my, my face? You guys can't see the listeners, <laughs> but my, my eyes are getting wide. I'm like, uh-oh, what do I need to do? So but, you yeah. you download... Google Authenticator? You know what? The best... Yeah. And if you Google... If you go to Google and okay. say, 
two-factor authentication. Google actually gives a really great, easy-to-understand explanation of what that is. And the idea is that the reason why that's so much more important than a password is because you need both. But even if somebody gets your password or guesses your password, they can't get that second code unless they physically have your device. Got it. Um, and so what about the ones where it creates a strong password on its own? That's it, a password manager. So yeah. is that a good idea? Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, password managers can be a real pain to set up initially, but then once you do, uh, you never have to remember those passwords, and they can be like 40 characters long and totally different for every site. But then where is it? I save it onto my computer. I it's save in it the cloud. It's, it's in, in a cloud, cloud vault. And none of this is perfect, but it's, like I said, it's better than the alternative, which is either you're going to end up reusing the same passwords because there's too many to remember. Yeah. Or you're going to make them simple in order to remember them. Yeah, no, 100%. And yeah. so this is really a business pivot for you, trying to say, hey, it shouldn't just be accessible to the billionaires. It should be accessible to all people to be able to uh, monitor their, uh, what do we call it, digital your digital life. Your digital yeah. life. Um, for Rubica, the, the mission was always that this should not be something that's only available to super techie people or mm -hmm. to very rich people. This is something that everybody needs now. Absolutely. And you shouldn't have to have an IT degree or a billion dollars to be able to have access to just meaningful security online. It's a yeah. human right, frankly. Yeah. Well, look, you're right back where you belong. I know. It's, I know. You're doing exactly what you need to be doing. Yeah. What would you tell your... I guess if you were mentoring someone, which you may already do, but about how to look at their career if they're 23. Mm, yeah. I would say take risks and opportunities without worrying about whether you think you're ready for them or not. Great advice. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, and not trying to get so hung up on um, thinking it needs to be a linear path. You mm -hmm. know, I think if I had... I would have I wouldn't be where I am if I had tried to be really rigid about what I thought the first, second and third steps in my career were. Just yes. kind of you can learn transferable skills and and learn things from everything and mm -hmm. even if you do something for a while that you realize, oh, that's not what I like, yes. that's just as important as learning what you do like. Yes. So. I love that. And even when we become successful people or companies, it's so easy to just show the pieces of the path that all line up. Yeah. And it's you you've almost failed like 100 more times of than course. you succeeded. And of if course. you hadn't like kept going or you know, pivoted or tried something different, then you probably wouldn't yeah. be here. So. I guess at what point will you feel successful? Is there a like, oh, if we reach that then hopefully you feel successful right now. Yeah. But you know how yeah. it is when you're yeah. driven and you want to accomplish things. Yeah. I mean, I I I always have my eye set on something more, but it's not um, not in, in like an unsatisfied seeking kind of way. It's, yeah. It's just that I... That you're driven. Yeah. And I think that there's always, I, I guess what I've come to realize and, you know, I still am a social justice advocate at heart. And but what I've realized is I don't have to have that as my career title. I can use whatever I'm doing as a platform. And that's what I think I'll always do is... Mm -hmm. um, and you are doing. For yeah. Sure. And that's and so I don't think it's ever over. I think I, I want to make sure whatever I'm doing, I'm using that as a platform for some sort of betterment or social change. And, mm -hmm. you know, what that exactly is might change over time. And so tell me what it means to you, um, I guess, as a mom to be leading a company and setting an example. It's um, important to me to not just 
Uh, I mean, what we're doing in cybersecurity is, I think, you know, revolutionary in itself, but almost more important than that is to make sure that we're building a business that can be a model for for good business practices, for how, you know, you don't have to decide between whether you're going to be a profitable business or a socially um, responsible business. Like those are two, two things that not only you can have both, but they actually go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And you can uh, build a business that has diversity and inclusion values as it, at, at its core and not... Um, you know, that's that is going to help your business not not detract. It's not it's not a detraction from where your your focus needs to be. So I think, you know, I want having kids makes me even kind of double down more on my goals to not just not just have a career, mm-hmm. but have one that is that I can be proud of in terms of the legacy. For sure. You know, so, you know, I don't want to, frankly, end up with a Facebook or an Uber. I want to say I built a company that um, has core values that were just as important as the bottom line. Yeah. And when do you feel kind of out of balance? And what does balance look like for you? You know, I don't really believe in balance. I don't know that it's actually attainable. I think balance to me is more like it's an ebb and flow. Well, that's what I mean. Like for me, I'll never feel 100% balanced. But there are moments when I'm like, you know, I haven't really had a lot of like um, me time or I haven't had a lot of time. I feel disconnected from my team right now. Yeah. Or I feel like I haven't been kind of mommy of the year this yes. week or yeah. whatever. And so yeah. you kind of do yeah, action items that make you feel a little bit more yeah. balanced. Yeah. But I guess through what lens are you looking at that, whether it's it's not attainable or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I have definitely learned that I... I have a very, um, I can sit and focus and work for a very, very long periods of time. Oh, you're but, so lucky. But eventually I, you know, it it burns me out. So I make sure that I disconnect on the weekends or that if I, I tend to like work hard, play hard, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and I make sure that I have reset time with family and friends. And I, I know that for myself, I have to exercise regularly. That's a huge. What do you do for exercise? I do CrossFit now. Oh, I used to baller. play basketball and soccer, and then that's just like two times. Do you consuming. throw the weights down and make grunting <laughs> noises? It's funny because when I did a couple of CrossFit classes, yeah. and I was like, started giggling with a wad. My yeah, I, it's very noisy. Such a cult. I, I went into a normal gym the other week, and it was so quiet. It was weird to me because yeah. the CrossFit gym super oh, loud. Oh, it's so loud. You know what? I have actually recruited a lot of people from CrossFit, and I'll tell you why. The well, it's a mindset. It's you have to be okay with failure and grit, and nobody is ever perfect at anything. There's mm-hmm. always something you can work on, and it's really hard, and you have to, like, work through that. There's a certain point in a lot of those workouts where it's mental. Mm-hmm. It's physically painful, and you just keep going. I would think of CrossFit as meant for really um, athletes, not because of the challenges involved, but because mm-hmm. of the – most athletes like that feeling of getting pushed hard. Yeah, I And metrics so. of goals. And- yeah, yeah. I'm definitely a team sport person, though, so I, I didn't think originally I'd like CrossFit, but it because um, it's such an individual yeah. thing. But it's uh, you know, there's there's a I'm not somebody who can just like go to the gym by myself and like get on a treadmill. I just won't do it. Yeah, yeah. I get that. And so you said work hard, play hard. What will we find you doing when you're playing hard? Other than CrossFit, because I find that fun. Um, I mean, I like. Uh, 
like we'll go on vacations like somewhere far, far away. <laughs> yeah. Or um, you love to travel. Hiking. I love to travel. Yeah. Yeah. I, you've got concentric advisors in your back pocket so you can feel safe. And what about relaxing? Are you reading a lot? It sounds like you are. I just I'm I just got back into reading. You know, I went I was, you know, obviously very into literature. Um and then and I started working and I like only read cybersecurity stuff yeah. and I, I finally started reading some novels again. Yeah. Are there any good T V shows around cybersecurity or books? You know, actually that it's uh, it's a little older now, but that Mr. Robot show that was oh, on. I haven't seen it. Oh, it's um, I forget if it was on Netflix or whatever, but it was about this like, kind of this hacker, yeah, community. But uh, it's actually relatively accurate in oh, terms of like, I mean, they kind of gloss over. I'm stuff, always but, curious to know yeah. if those things are accurate. What would we be surprised to learn about you? How do people misread you or misunderstand you? Mm, that's interesting. You know, I I feel like sometimes I'm a person of contradictions that I it depends on what context you meet me in. Like I've had um I've had people who know me at work be surprised that I can just be like a total goofball and people who know me in my personal life that are like oh my gosh, you're so like organized and serious and like, you know. So, yeah. um I know my mom, whenever she's with me and I can be kind of spacey in certain things, or she thinks that I might be spacey, she's like, I just don't know how you're running that company. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm like? I'm actually very capable, but sometimes you just go into roles, right? You're with your friends, That's you're right. like, I'm the silly person, or That's you're with right. your spouse and you're like, well, he's actually more this way than I am, so I'm going to let him do that. Right. So yeah. you, you're able to be, you're flexible. I, and I think I am a balancer personality, so it yes, depends on who I am. I can see that. Yeah. I can totally see that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I always ask this as the last question, but what what ultimately fuels you? It is that social change, social advocacy. I um, I always want to use what I'm doing as a platform for social change and particularly the betterment of people who are marginalized in society. Well, thank you for being that person. I think that that's, that's a calling, right? Yeah. And that's probably something that's just in your DNA. So. And now you're putting it to use. And I'm literally, the minute we get off this podcast, I'm going to have you show me how to download Rubica. Oh, Is I it got, an app? I got your back. Yeah. Okay. I'm so excited. Yeah. Yay. I'll get you taken care of. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.